Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone uh, to today's program, Understanding the Costs of Care and Your Health Care Coverage. And today's program is part two of Life with Cancer, A Guide to Getting the Best Care. Uh, today's program is, uh, is an amazing program that you're all on the call today, that we can use this technology to reach all of you, and that you're either on the phone or online and listening today. We have wonderful speakers, and I, uh, I just want to say that um, this program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have so many of you on the call today. And we have on the call today over 419 participants. And you come from all over the United States, some different rural, some urban, some suburban areas. And we also have uh, participants from some international countries, uh, Canada, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, New Zealand, and the United Kingdom. So clearly there's some global interest in this as well. And uh, we have wonderful speakers. And before I introduce them, um, I wanted to say that this program is supported by Abby uh, Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, uh, an LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support and collaboration on this program. Now, we have the best speakers on today's program, and I want to begin by just introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz. And Dr. Saltz is a medical oncologist, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, professor of medicine, Wild Cornell Medical College. Dr. Saltz will be addressing a number of issues and also put them in the context of the world we're living in right now with the coronavirus. Um, but he will be addressing the overview of medical and indirect costs of treatment, what, we're, what to do when cancer treatment seems unaffordable, talking with your healthcare team about your financial concerns. It's now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Saltz. Hello, everybody. It's a pleasure to have a chance to talk with you today. Um, as uh, everybody is aware, uh, the world is uh, affected by the pandemic of the coronavirus or COVID-19, and it would be unreasonable for us to talk about our issues with cancer care without keeping it in the context of how things are changing because of this virus and this epidemic. So my comments today are not exactly what I would have planned a week ago. Um, we still need to be concerned about all the issues that uh, we're concerned about with our cancer patients in terms of getting everybody the care that they need and making the right choices in terms of the safety and effectiveness of therapy. We also need to be concerned about the financial issues involved because everybody knows that health care is expensive and cancer care is expensive, and different people have different abilities to withstand those expenses or what we are now calling financial toxicity um, based on both their overall uh, financial wherewithal and their degree of insurance coverage and their medical needs. So within that context, the first thing I want to say about dealing with the financial toxicities and your concerns about cost is that it is okay to talk about it. It is okay 
to ask your doctor about it. It is okay to ask the other healthcare professionals that you're interacting with and to share your concerns. There has been a ethos in our society that somehow the cost of care is something we don't talk about. And in a world where you think about the medical relationship with your doctor, where you talk about the most intimate details of, of, of your body, uh, certainly talking about anything that concerns you is something that's fair game, that's appropriate, and that both you and your doctor should be comfortable doing. The more you have a concern and don't share it with your healthcare professional, the less that healthcare professional has a chance to help you with that. Um, so often we try to anticipate what things are on people's minds, what they're worrying about, and make uh, you know interventions accordingly. But we can't read everyone's mind. Too often this isn't in the front of doctors' minds, and it's going to be important for you to, as your own advocate, um, to feel comfortable talking with patients, uh, talking with the doctors and uh, other caregivers about your concerns and finding ways to work through the problems. Some of the other speakers today are going to help you with some of the strategies and sources you can use to work through those concerns and those problems. Let me say a little bit about the coronavirus. This is something that we as a society haven't dealt with before. And we're seeing already that this is changing our society in ways that a week ago we couldn't have imagined. Uh, most of us are social distancing. Most of us are working from home. Uh, most of us have children that are not in school uh, uh, have, uh, and, and, and are not seeing our offices. Uh, I can tell you at my center, we're doing everything we can to maintain contact with our patients, but doing it electronically. And so you need to be expecting that from your doctor, that there will be more phone calls, more teleconferences, and fewer actual face-to-face -face visits. If you are a solid tumor patient, in other words, you don't, uh, we're not talking leukemias, lymphomas, that's not my area of expertise, and I can't comment on that. But for colon cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, prostate cancer, the common solid tumors, in truth, the chemotherapy that you're on is not likely to make you either more susceptible to the virus or more at risk for trouble if you get it. However, if you are in a weakened condition, then that does make you both more susceptible to the virus and more susceptible to serious complications. That's why you need to accept that each venture out, each trip to the doctor, each uh, contact with other people, each going to a center, because there's going to be no medical center where there isn't somebody that has the coronavirus infection, is some risk to you. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. That means that you and your doctors are going to be thinking about the relative risk benefit in terms of face-to-face -face visits. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is telling patients when it would be safer to take a holiday from chemotherapy for a couple of months than to come in for chemotherapy. That's a decision that's going to be based on a lot of different factors and something that you can expect to be hearing from from your doctor. Some of our habits in, uh, in terms of frequency of treatment, frequency of line flushes, frequency of scans, frequency of blood tests, the benefits from those have not changed, but the risks have gone up because every contact 
carries risk to you and to your fellow patients and to your caregivers that if we don't protect them, aren't going to be there to help you. And so we, we need to be thinking about all these factors and realizing that we're all in uncharted waters. We're all moving forward in this together. But that means change. That means change that none of us are comfortable with. And it's going to require keeping an open mind, keeping open dialogue with your healthcare providers, just recognizing it's going to be much more by phone, by portal, <clears throat> by teleconference, and not in person. And understand that some changes are going to happen because of the relative safety of keeping you in your home rather than the relative benefit of bringing you in um, because each, uh, each physical encounter will necessarily carry some risk. You may find that uh, doctors are going to make decisions to change your chemotherapy uh, whenever possible from something that's given intravenously to something that's given orally so that we can ship drug to you, have you take it at home, and monitor you by telephone or portal or various other electronic things. These are changes that are necessarily going to happen. And just because we didn't do it before doesn't mean that it isn't going to be good care. Um, there's an awful lot of important things we are able to do to take care of patients without a lot of the hands-on stuff that we have been doing, which has been baked into our system, often really for the financial reasons involved rather than for the true need for patient care. And so um, don't get too thrown by these changes. Realize that these are accommodating to the reality and accommodating to the changes that doctors together are, are, are figuring out how the risk-benefit ratio for their patients has changed and how to make things as safe as possible for you, the patient, during these very difficult times over the next few months. So those are really the comments that I've prepared today. Um, the uh, issues are going to be constantly changing. I'm, I'm sure that this program and others are going to have more uh, availability to address this issue as it goes on, and you're all going to need to keep abreast of what's happening, and keep a, a balanced perspective on it. Be aware that just like with medical information, the Internet can be the source of a lot of disinformation, and you have to be careful not to jump on every uh, new thing that you see on the Internet that tells you either a positive or negative about this. Take some time, digest the information, um, work with your doctor and your healthcare providers, make sure they know what you're concerned about, so they can address those concerns and try to make your management of your cancer as effective and as comfortable for you as possible. With that, I wish everybody the best of luck and a good day. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. And thank you also for setting the context for today's program as well and um, for actually um, addressing this context in the context of COVID-19. And actually, we will be doing another program on just on that topic on, on March 30th, and you'll be hearing information about that. However, we do want to be aware that 
you're, you're aware you need to know some information right now also from us while we're doing this program. So we've been doing programs all week, and next week we'll be mentioning it as well, just so that you have a context. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Domna Antonidis. She is an attorney. She's um, a senior attorney with Legal Health, New York Legal Assistance Group, and she'll be addressing a number of topics, access to health plans, Medicare and Medicaid coverage, the benefits and limitations of your health plan, insurance, Medicare and Medicaid coverage, tips on appealing your insurance, Medicare claims and provider dials, and living wills, healthcare proxies, and advanced care health directives. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Antonidis. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and I'm so pleased to be a part of this workshop with Cancer Care. I am going to be editing a little bit of my presentation in light of the coronavirus, but I do think it is really important to still have a very, you know, basic understanding of health insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, um, and how to really understand this and how it applies to your, your treatment. So in discussing access to health coverage, it's important to know that there are different types of insurance plans, and each type can be very different. For example, there are private insurance, which includes group plans from employment, unions or associations, individual plans, plans purchased through the current state or federal marketplace, Medicaid and Medicare. The type of plan you have is going to determine the types of laws and rules that apply regarding coverage, eligibility, and appeals. Some plans only follow federal requirements, while others also have to follow state law as well. I'm going to talk about some of the relevant laws related to access and how they impact different coverage types. So the Affordable Care Act is a federal law and was passed in 2010. Among other things, a person can no longer be denied insurance based on their health or pre-existing condition. Another important change is the requirement that insurance companies can no longer limit the amount they pay for medical costs over the year or have a lifetime maximum or monetary cap. It also means that an insurance company can no longer say um, that they are not going to cover certain individuals with pre-existing conditions um, or other limitations on the age of, de of dependence. So for work-based coverage, HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, is a federal law which also provides legal protections for workers. Many people know about HIPAA through the privacy aspect, but actually Title I protects access to health insurance coverage for workers and their family when they start a new job or change jobs. Under HIPAA, work group plans may not establish rules of eligibility, charge greater premiums to different employees, or deny enrollment based on an employee's health. As a result, anyone who elects work coverage is charged the same, has equal access, and cannot be denied coverage. Also under HIPAA, a person is able to request a copy of their insurance file from their insurer. ERISA. ERISA is a federal law, and any health insurance coverage policy offered through employment is considered an ERISA plan. The most important thing to know about these plans is that how the policy is funded impacts if the policy needs to comply with both state and federal laws or just federal law. So I'll tell you about the two differences. If the policy is self-funded, that means that the employer pays a company to administer the policy, such as a Blue Cross or Cigna, but the employer actually pays out any medical claims from their own pocket. Self-funded policies only have to follow federal law. If a policy is fully insured, 
That means that the employer pays a premium to purchase a group policy from an insurance company, and the insurance company actually pays any medical claim from their pockets. Fully insured policies have to comply with both state and federal law. So the reason it's really important to know if your insurance has to follow state or federal law is because certain states have additional protections that are not included in the federal law. So for example, oral parity. Oral under normally cancer medications that are administered through an IV are going to be covered through a member's health benefit plans. But in contrast, cancer medications that are given by mouth are usually covered under the pharmacy benefit. So when it comes to medication for cancer treatment, pharmacy benefits typically require the patient to cover a percentage of the drug. And this sometimes will make the drug much more expensive than had they been receiving a, a chemotherapy through an IV. So 43 states and the District of Columbia actually have oral parity laws which limit patient out-of-pocket costs for oral medications used to treat cancer. This is a really important thing to really be able to understand for your policy, especially if more doctors are going to be prescribing oral chemotherapy as opposed to chemotherapy through IVs. The other important reason that it can be helpful to know is about fertility preservation. So several states have actually enacted laws to expand coverage for insurance for fertility preservation, such as egg freezing or, or sperm banking. So moving on, the, a health insurance marketplace following, now operates in every state. In the marketplace, you can compare different plan benefits, see if you're entitled to government-paid subsidies to lower the cost, and determine if you may be eligible for free coverage under Medicaid. For people who are lower income, the monthly premiums are reduced, but it's important to compare the plans since many do have high co-pays and deductibles. The sites allow you to compare costs and policies, and there are often telephone help centers available to answer questions. Other private coverage. Insurance companies are still also available through brokers. These plans are often more costly, but many have better coverage, and they ultimately do need to follow this, the local, state, and federal law. Finally, if you belong to an association or group, they often offer group health plans at a less expensive rate. For example, there are freelancer groups, there are groups available through certain licensing, like, for example, uh, the Bar Association, and you may be able to access group health insurance depending on your circumstances. Moving on to Medicare. Medicare is a federal program with rules that are uniform to all participants in all 50 states. Medicare is primarily available to people age 65 or older who are citizens or permanent residents, and if under 65, a person who's been receiving Social Security disability benefits for a period of 24 months. Medicare coverage consists of a number of parts. Part A, which provides free hospital coverage, Part B, medical insurance, which requires a monthly premium, and Part T, Part T, the prescription drug insurance plans, which are provided through private insurance companies that have contracts with the government. There is also Part C, which allows private health insurance companies, such as HMOs, to provide Medicare benefits. These Medicare private health plans are sometimes known as Medicare Advantage plans and are chosen instead of Parts B and D. Medicare A and B generally do not cover the entire cost of medical treatment, often only up to 80%. Many people purchase additional Medicare GAP program policies to supplement Medicare. And I should point out that these policies are exempt from the ACA requirements, and some do have pre-existing condition exclusions, so make sure to read these plans and ask questions. Access to these supplements and their costs vary state to state. 
Enrollment in both marketplace plans and Medicare typically take place during an open enrollment period, and if a patient misses these deadlines, they may have to wait until the following year. There are exceptions, such as when someone is losing other coverage, so again, make sure to speak to someone knowledgeable in this area. If someone does not sign up when eligible, with some exceptions, they could face a penalty when they decide to later enroll. For people who are lower income, Medicaid can also serve as a supplemental policy to Medicare. Ultimately, Medicare rules can be very complicated, so it's, in it's important to speak with an expert or to take a look at Medicare.gov. There's a really great nonprofit called the Medicare Rights Center who are real experts in navigating the complexities of Medicare. Um, they have a very interactive website at MedicareRights.org. So now hopping to Medicaid. Medicaid is a federal-state partnership with shared authority and financing. Certain eligibility rules are established mainly by each state and vary depending on where you live. So again, it's important to know your state Medicaid requirements. Medicaid is free and it can be really helpful for cancer patients because it offers much needed home care or can actually cover nursing home coverage. Access is based on being low income with a limitation on how much you can have in income and assets. For those who are disabled or elderly with higher income, one can often become eligible through special Medicaid programs. There are also special Medicaid plans offered in some states with higher income limits for certain types of cancer patients or for working people with disabilities. If you qualify, Medicaid recipients are also entitled to the same essential health benefits that someone is entitled to through the ACA and private insurance. In about one half the states, Medicaid has been expanded to increase coverage to more people. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the New York marketplace is actually considered a one-stop shop where someone can be screened for Medicaid as well as private health insurance or health insurance with premiums. So going to understanding the benefit and limitations of your health plans. First and foremost, if you have computer access, it can be very helpful to create an online account so that you can easily access necessary documents and communicate with your insurance company. This applies if you have a private or government insurance policy. The most important advice I can give is to read a copy of your summary of benefits, which breaks down your cost sharing and basics about your policy, and get a copy of your full insurance policy, known as your certificate of coverage. This outlines your benefits, any coverage limits or exclusions, prior authorization requirements, and the appeals process. The certificate of coverage is usually 100 plus pages, um, but your insurance company or employer must provide you with a copy if you ask for it. If you're unable to get a copy, then I recommend filing a complaint with the Department of Labor they have a very easy to use employee complaint portal. The reason that it's so important to have a copy of your certificate of coverage is because health insurance is essentially a contract. You or your employer agree, agree to certain payments or structures and guidelines. And in return, your health insurer agrees to cover certain services in your policy in a certain way and certain services required by law. The reason it's important to have the certificate of coverage is because that is ultimately your contract. That is what your insurance is supposed to be following. It's also important for you to know whether your policy is an HMO, which allows only in-network doctors, or a plan that allows for out-of-network doctors like a PPO. If you use an HMO, your insurance will usually not cover treatment provided for an out-of-network doctor. However, many states now do have surprise bill and emergency bill laws that protect you from being billed when you receive treatment 
from an out-of-network provider without your knowledge or for emergencies. Going on to appeals. Your insurance company is required to provide an explanation of benefit called an EOB for each claim reviewed. The EOB outlines the billed service, amount paid by your insurance, and your required contribution. If your insurance denies a claim or only covers a certain portion, then the EOB includes the reason for denial. Health plans and insurance companies have to tell you why they've decided to deny a claim with very specific information. You also have the right to request a full copy of your insurance file through HIPAA prior to the appeal to see how they reached their decision, including any policies or notes relied upon by the insurance company. If your claim is denied, it can help to email or call your insurer to get more information about the denial. Sometimes claims are denied for administrative reasons that are easy to fix. Keep track of your calls, emails, or letters, writing down the date and who you speak with at your insurance company. If the matter can't be resolved by, CP, by speaking with your insurance company, then you can file an appeal directly with your insurance. Make sure you read the reason the service is being denied, check your policy, and in your written appeal, document the reason you disagree with the insurance company, include medical records, and a letter from your treating doctor. Your insurance company must conduct a full and fair review within a certain time period, and if urgent, they have to expedite this process. If you're worried that your insurance company is not complying with the law or the terms of the policy, then I often recommend that people file a complaint with their state insurance department, attorney general's office, or the Department of Labor. A lot of time people think that filing complaints doesn't actually accomplish anything, but in my experience I've actually found that when you are complaining to these three, these three agencies, they're very consumer friendly and very involved in trying to get the insurance company to comply with, with certain requirements. If your insurance company denies the, the appeal, then you also have the right to request an external appeal, which gives you the right to file an appeal to an outside, objective, and independent panel, no matter where you live and what type of insurance you have. If the external review overturns your insurer's denial, your insurer must give you the payments or services you requested in your claim. The good news is, is that about half of all denied claims that are appealed are reversed. The percentage for external review is even higher. While it's often difficult to keep on top of insurance matters with so much else going on, it's with, if you understand your rights and responsibilities, as well as receive help from your medical team, government resources, and groups such as cancer care, you'll be able to navigate any insurance issues or questions that come up. One thing that's helpful to note in regards to insurance and appealing is given this, the, the circumstances that we're having with providers possibly changing types of coverage or treatments that you're getting, you may have some times where your insurance company is denying something that's not medically necessary or claiming that there is a better treatment available. This is when you have an opportunity to really appeal the decision and explain why in your circumstances this new treatment is medically necessary. Oftentimes, if you speak with your doctor, they'll be willing to explain in their medical letter why they may be switching your treatment and why given your history and perhaps the risks and benefits that were discussed earlier are the reasoning behind the change in treatment. So I'm going to just finish up with Living Will Healthcare Proxies and Advanced Healthcare Directives. These are documents that a person can, can create 
that gives them a right to decide what medical care they choose and receive and who, to ch and who they choose to communicate with their medical team if they become unable to do so. The laws vary in every state, so again, important to know your state law. The healthcare proxy form allows you to name an agent to make healthcare decisions for you if you become incapacitated and unable to communicate your wishes to your doctor. The form is usually simple to prepare and requires witnesses. The healthcare proxy must be completed while someone is still able to understand what the document means. However, it doesn't actually go into effect until a person is no longer able to communicate their wishes to their doctor. As long as you're able to make your own healthcare decisions, your doctor is going to be discussing them with you. If no healthcare proxy is signed, many states also have surrogate decision-making laws that determine who can make decisions for the patient. This might include family and even close friends. Surrogate decision-making laws are helpful, but again, it's always best for a person to have a choice as to who they trust with their decisions. Next, I want to talk about the living will, which is a statement of one's wishes with respect to potential end-of-life medical decisions that can serve as guidance to your healthcare agent and healthcare providers. A living will will generally apply when it's determined that the patient is in an incurable or irreversible condition with no reasonable expectation of recovery. Like the healthcare proxy, a living will is a simple form to complete with just witnesses needed. Finally, just to mention, although not a medical decision-making tool, a very helpful document is called a power of attorney. This form allows an individual to name an agent to handle their personal affairs during their lifetime, including banking, insurance, and other financial matters. This form generally needs to be notarized and it's important to have someone you trust as your agent. Although a power of attorney does not cover healthcare issues, it can be useful if you need someone to help you with insurance, government, or navigating financial systems, because it means that they can act on your behalf or go places on your behalf as long as they have the completed form. I know that this is a lot of information, but it's important to understand that these documents are and how they help both the patient as well as their family and medical providers take actions. I also just want to briefly mention that there's a great organization called the National Cancer Legal Services Network where individuals can find across the country other groups which offer free legal advice to help people with cancer. Um, so thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Antonides. That was outstanding, really wonderful presentation and um, a lot of information for everybody. And thank you. Um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, and our next uh, speaker is Michelle McCourt, and Ms. McCourt is our um, Cancer Care Senior Director of Cancer Care Copayment Assistance Foundation. And Ms. McCourt will be addressing what are copayment assistance programs, what are they, and how to access copayment assistance programs. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. McCourt. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you um, for the opportunity today to speak. And as Carolyn mentioned, my um, my area is what are copayment assistance programs and how you can access them. Cancer is an expensive illness, and even with insurance coverage, many patients are challenged with access and affordability barriers that affect their ability to start or stay on treatment. Copayment assistance programs are designed to address the financial needs of insured patients by assisting with copayments, coinsurance, and premiums that can be a barrier for patients to access their treatments as prescribed by their doctor. These programs serve as a safety net for patients who have no other alternative resources for assistance. 
There are different types of copayment assistance programs available. Some are administered directly through the pharmaceutical company, and others are administered through an independent charity foundation. Eligibility for these programs vary depending on your diagnosis, your treatment, and the type of insurance coverage you have. Patients with private commercial insurance may be eligible for a program through a pharmaceutical company that manufactures their treatment. Through the reimbursement support services set up by the company, patients with private insurance may be eligible to receive a coupon where the most they may pay to have may have to pay for their prescription is a $25 copay, or they may be eligible for their copayment assistance program, which may cover the entire copay for the specific treatment through a copay card that they would present to the pharmacy for payment. Typically, these programs are offered when there is no generic equivalent available. In order to be eligible for these programs, there is usually an income criteria that has to be met and only patients with private or commercial insurance are eligible to apply. Also, these programs are drug specific, so you have to be prescribed a treatment manufactured by that drug company. Patients with Medicare or Medicaid are not eligible for this type of program. The other type of program is referred to as a copayment assistance foundation. Copayment assistance foundations are administered by an independent nonprofit organization and are not affiliated with the drug company. The funds are disease specific, not drug specific. In order to be eligible for this type of program, the patient must meet certain financial and medical and insurance criteria. If eligible, the foundation will provide financial assistance with the out-of-pocket costs associated with deductibles, copays, and coinsurance for medications used to treat the disease. For example, to be eligible for Cancer Care's Copayment Assistance Foundation, the primary cancer diagnosis must match one of the funds that we have open. The household income must be at or below 500% of the federal poverty level. For a family with two in the household, that's about $86,000 per year. The patient must have insurance. Some of our funds cover both private and federal insured patients, while others are limited to only patients with federal insurance such as Medicare. Patients must be in active treatment or have a treatment plan in place. Our foundation covers all products, including generic or bioequivalent drugs, as prescribed by the treating physician to treat the patient's primary cancer diagnosis. Patients must be a U.S. citizen or legal resident of the United States. Along with Cancer Care, there are approximately nine other national copay foundations. Cancer Care is the only foundation focused solely on oncology and has funds for solid tumors and hematological cancers. Our copayment specialists are also able to put patients in touch with a Cancer Care social worker for immediate access to our support services. How can you find out about these programs? The best way to find out about all of these assistance programs is to discuss these financial concerns and insurance barriers with your healthcare team who can put you in touch with a financial counselor or social worker. You can also get in touch with an organization such as Cancer Care that provide these resources. Another important website that keeps a current listing of assistance programs 
is Needy Meds. They can be reached at needymeds.org. You can review our foundation's listing of available funds by visiting our website at www.cancercarecopay.org. The foundations rely on donations and are limited based on the amount of funding that's available. If you have been referred to a foundation, get in touch with them right away to start the application process, as funds will open and close quickly at various times throughout the year. Thank you. I will now turn this back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Court. That was really outstanding and, and a wonderful presentation. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Ms. Marie Rodriguez. Ms. Rodriguez is Senior Director of Patient Assistance Programs Cancer Care. And she will be addressing support for the underinsured and uninsured, including Medicaid, other resources, financial help, and Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Rodriguez. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care and the Senior Director of Patient Assistance Programs. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay abreast of the changing trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. We've been talking today about the cost of your care, what to do if you are uninsured or underinsured or on Medicaid, and the importance of creating a support network as part of that care. I would like to talk about how cancer care can be part of that network. As you've previously heard, cancer care is a very expensive illness. For people without insurance, the direct medical cost can be a serious obstacle to obtaining care. But even for those with insurance, most are unprepared for the out-of-pocket expenses of their cancer treatment. Some of these costs can include doctor's fees, hospital charges, and medication costs, which may not be covered by their insurance. So it is very important to know what to do or where to turn if you're uninsured or find yourself underinsured. Some actions you can take are to speak to your doctor. As Dr. Saltz previously shared and all the other speakers, it is very important that as soon as you start experiencing financial issues related to your diagnosis, that you discuss this with your medical team. This is to ensure that a lapse in treatment does not occur as a result. They can also help you navigate these issues and refer you to the hospital social worker or financial navigator at your local hospital. Your hospital's financial department is another great resource. They can help you estimate what monthly amount you will be able to pay. At times, can locate some charitable programs that will help you. Encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that can help you. Some great resources to find local organizations that help based upon your location and type of cancer are Cancer Care. Um, we have a great helping hand, uh, the 2020 Resource Guide for People with Cancer. You can access this electronically by visiting Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This guide gives you a list of national and local organizations that they assist with. Another great, org another great resource guide is the National Resource Guide, which can be found on the Patient Advocate Foundation website at www.patientadvocate.org. This guide will help you identify 
possible organizations that may help based on your state and diagnosis. And finally, the American Cancer Society's wonderful searchable database. You can use by simply going to www.cancer.org or you can call them at 1-800-227-2345. I want to um, talk a little bit about briefly about Cancer Care and its programs and services. Cancer Care is the leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by an oncology social worker and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual, their caregivers, and loved ones. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustments, and psychological impact and care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer and patients and their caregivers may face. Some of these issues that in the current times that we're, we're faced with currently are issues dealing with social distancing that we're currently experiencing as a country, working remotely, which has changed everything, and at homeschooling with now the children being at home. These are three very important topics that while not part of today's talk, I would be remiss in not mentioning as um, very important in how it will impact not only a cancer patient, but a caregiver as well. So these are the things that you would be able to talk to a cancer care social worker on. And I will, I'm going to continue. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered in person in New York City and area over the telephone and online nationally. Currently, our face-to-face our -face is on hold, and we're doing all of this um, remotely. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker and an individual counseling can offer a space that, just, that is just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones are your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. Joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it, it also provides a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups. Our current groups can be found listed on our website at www.cancercare.org. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance, as well as establishing support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having the support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide educational workshops such as these 
reading material, as well as limited financial support. If you are experiencing or interested in learning more about our services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. There, you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be part of this program today. I will now turn the program over back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Rodriguez. That was really exceptional. And thank you also for mentioning some of the issues that people are experiencing and how um, how our social workers at Cancer Care can assist them. So thank you so much. And then there'll be questions for you as well during the Q&A. So we now are going to um, have, a, we now have time for questions. I want to thank all of our speakers for making that possible. And um, I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board. And Dr. Um, I also, Dr. Stuart Fleischman is joining us. Uh, Dr. Fleischman is a forming founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, author and researcher in oncology. So we have um, uh, uh, quite a wonderful uh, group of speakers here that will be able to address your questions. And I'm going to ask um, Norma to explain to you how to queue up for questions. Everyone knows how to do that. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Emil S. Your line is open. As a single person, if you meet your Medicare deductible for the year, why doesn't Medicare cover 100% of treatment? And why do secondary and tertiary plans follow what Medicare covers and not, and not covers? If you need to appeal, this causes added stress, which interferes with cancer treatment. What is a person to do? Thank you for that question, Emil. Um, I'm going to ask Ms. Antonidas to address that question to start with. Um, would you be willing to take that, Ms. Antonidas? And so, and she'll so address that it in a general way for you. Absolutely. So that is a, a fantastic question, and I think really there, there's two parts of it. Of you know, one in regards to even after meeting the deductible, um, why it only will continue to cover a certain per, percentage. So unfortunately, with certain aspects of Medicare, they're built into the law, and there's just certain cost-sharing aspects that there, there isn't much that can be done to, to change it, even if the rationale really does not seem to make sense. On to the second part about the appealing and how stressful it can be, I, I think you really hit the nail on the head about an issue that is really impacting so many people across everywhere in that appealing something, even if it ultimately is reversed, creates unnecessary stress. And unfortunately, the only thing I can say that you can do is to try to streamline and systematize your appeals as many as often and easily as you can by using templates, trying to do things as much as possible electronically or using individuals to really help so that you're not the only one doing it. In regards to one of the things I mentioned earlier about the power of attorney, that can be really helpful because you can always have your power of attorney help doing these appeals so that you're not the only one 
because oftentimes Medicare is only going to talk to you. So really sometimes there's not much that we can do right now to change the system that we're within, um, but at least trying to use some of the tools to at least make it less stressful for you. Thank you. Thank you, and thanks for that wonderful question, and thank you for the wonderful answer and for addressing it. Um, and our next question, Norma. Our next question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is open. Yes, thank you so much. I was actually talking to other people about exactly what you're talking about, and I appreciate it. I'm a social worker, a nurse, and a breast cancer survivor for 14 years, and I had to change my insurance since I reached 65. I was on Social Security Disability under 65, and it was more money. I'm, I was glad that it went down in price, but I have a question. It's going to go up every year, I was told, by my insurance company until it's 30. That I don't understand. If I want to change to another plan, I'm considered a pre-existing condition of having had breast cancer, and other women I also have cancers. They were all told the same thing. You Part B plans, you have, some of them won't even take you. I'm on the plan I like, but if I want to change, I can't get into another plan, I was told. Also, is the price go up every year? And also, with the tier exception appeals, why aren't the doctors... Uh, doing that, I was told I have to do it, which I've been doing all my meds, and every Part D is a mm -hmm. different price, and all the tiers mm -hmm. are different. And now they're trying to Thank change you. that, I heard. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Um, again, uh, Ms. Antonides, do you want to address that? So, sure. So, I, I think the first, uh, again, so a lot of different parts in that question. So, in regard to certain aspects about the pre existing condition exclusions, so with the Medicare Advantage plans um, or certain types of Medicare gap plans, they are allowed to have these pre-existing exclusions. With that being said, um, there are there is a lot of intersect between Medicare, Medicaid, special Medicare programs where it may be possible that you can get some sort of coverage which isn't exactly an Advantage plan but can help at least reduce some of these costs. Um, the, the probably the the best place to reach out if you haven't done so already is going to be the Medicare Right Center, and the main reason I'm I'm going to sort of point you towards them is because a lot of times where you live in the state you're in is going to have different rules about types of Medicare gap plans or Advantage plans that you might be able to access. And so Medicare Right Center has a lot of that centralized information, but can also sort of give you more specific things related to the states that you're in. Um, and then in regards to the prices changing, um, I mean, I think that, from my understanding, that does change annually, but I, I really wouldn't know for sure how that's going to continue or even if things are going to be on a temporary hold, especially given the circumstances uh, going on right now. Thank you. Um, and we have some um, questions from our online participants. Um, and the first one for Dr. Fleischman. Um, how has the pandemic changed cancer care, which Dr. Saltz had addressed in part, but if you just want to say a few more words about that? Yeah, and how has it influenced costs? I guess that's the other issue that we can give that to other people, but if you could just talk about how the pandemic has changed the care. Well, I, I, the care immediately has changed because either people are unable to travel to see their treatment team in person or they're asked not to come in. And I think Dr. Salt started to explain how um, it may be, may be or it's likely that some of the uh, chemotherapies will be given on a different schedule or even changed to an oral equivalent drug. That 
focuses right in on the economic issue because of um, payments for all drugs are often different than payments for chemotherapy drugs. There um, has been some um, exception, as we heard, of an oral equivalent uh, to be paid under a lot of the plans, but this is all to be worked out for the future. So I, I think that whatever we say today may actually change by tomorrow, <laughs> um, but your treatment team uh, will, will, act, will be able to access the people that actually do the billing. The doctors, and these days, I could say probably 100% of the time are not the ones sitting and writing out the bills and entering the bills in the computer to go to your insurance. So um, his office staff in a private office or a smaller enterprise, it would be an office manager or a financial counselor or a billing coordinator. In a hospital, there may be a separate billing department, often in another building, sometimes in another state, but with an 800 number and email access. And they would be the ones to be able to uh, better say what's going to happen for you after uh, we have a number of uh, policy directors from the federal government and for, or from the state governments that control what the insurance companies may or may not consider oral equivalents or a telemedicine visit in place of a regular visit. These, these things keep changing. Um, but the people who will have the right answer, and it may not be right at the time you want it because we do have to wait for the policy changes, um, are the people who actually do the billing for your in in your doctors and advanced practice nurses offices or at the hospitals where you're being treated. Excellent, thank you. And um, Ms. Antonis, do you want to comment about the um, the parity that you had put, uh, mentioned earlier? So, as I had mentioned earlier, um, numerous states. I think I had said it was about 43 states have something called oral parity laws. So, what that means is that if you have an insurance plan that has to comply with state insurance laws, that means that they can't have higher cost sharing just because you're getting a chemotherapy drug orally as opposed to through an IV. So let's say you are uh, having a, a, a change in your medication and now it's going to be an oral drug. If you're seeing that your insurance company is denying it, this is really a time where you can do an appeal, file a complaint, and be very vocal. Um, you know, Ultimately, these decisions are being made as medical ne medically necessary changes for your well-being, and sometimes we do really need to push back in regards to the insurers and how they're they're clarifying things or how they're complying with certain laws. So I, I think that the main aspect is even, you know, if let's say your state doesn't have an oral parity law, that it still is a good opportunity to make an argument for lower cost sharing and to still file the complaints or be vocal if there's a medication that your doctor is saying is just as beneficial but you can't be getting or they don't recommend because of, you know, needing to socially distance or needing to protect you, then I think it really is a good opportunity to be very loud about that and to complain if you're being charged some egregious amount. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and um, we have another question from one of our other um, online participants, um, and this question is um, so which insurers can enact pre-existing conditions clauses? If you could address that, Ms. Antonides. So generally, so okay, so that's a little bit of a complicated question, but the, the main thing is, is that the Affordable Care Act 
is a federal law, which means that almost everyone needs to comply with it. Um, and the Affordable Care Act applies to everyone who is not a grandfathered insurance plan. So what that would be, grandfathered means a policy that has not changed in any way with the cost sharing since 2010. Anyone who's had an insurance where the premiums gone up, the deductibles have changed, their coinsurance has changed, that means it's not grandfathered. So rule of thumb is if it's a non-grandfathered plan, I mean, if it's a grandfathered plan, they don't have to follow the pre-existing conditions. But if it's through a workplace, they do. Because as I said, HIPAA actually protects people from pre-existing condition exclusions. So there's really going to be very limited plans that have these pre-existing uh, exclusions. Although, as uh, the first caller did mention, a lot of the Medicare Advantage plans do still have these because they're not covered under the Affordable Care Act. Excellent, thank you. Um, and um, uh, we have another, uh, these are really, it's amazing the questions. These are excellent questions. And again, this one appears to be, um, so this is a question again for Ms. Antonidas. I'm glad you're on the call. Why does it seem like all employer-sponsored plans that are second to Medicare not pay the remaining balance after Medicare pays? So okay. I'm assuming that this is considering the 80%, 20%, because there's definitely certain aspects that Medicare is not going to pay. So... I can't really answer why. Um, I think part of it is that it's an employer plan. Um, again, the Advantage plans have different limitations and different requirements, so it just might be that um, they're, they're not required to cover the full portion. Um, but but for, for this question, I really actually I can't give you a more complete answer because I think there, there's really so many ways to interpret the question. So we we have these wonderful questions on our. Program. I know. Oh my goodness. They're they're, they're really um, incredible questions. Um, and um, before we conclude, um, Ms. McCourt, did you want to add anything in terms of the copay and just um, some of the um, things that people should particularly be aware of? Because copay is so important for people being aware of the, using those programs and and accessing the cancer care program as well. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that I would maybe add. Um, you know, to my presentation is that, you know, you, you definitely want to check with your insurance and know what your insurance coverage is. And a lot of the, um, the, the drug companies do offer these reimbursement support programs that can also help with um, understanding what your insurance will coverage, cover and what your out-of-pocket costs will be. Um, and I believe they might also be able to help if there's, you know, an appeal process. So they might be able to be a resource for you for appeals. Um, so if you're taking a, a medication that's expensive or your doctor's prescribing a medication that's expensive, um, it, you know, along with speaking with your healthcare team, I would also uh, try and get in touch with the drug company. And the other thing that I would also um, like to mention is that you, you probably also want to check with your insurance provider. If you're going to be using a coupon that, that's being distributed from a drug company, you want to check with your insurance to make sure that they are um, not restricting those coupons because some programs, some insurance policies or providers are putting what they call copay accumulators on 
uh, on using those coupons. And basically what that means is that when you get a, a, a coupon, typically it counts towards your deductible. But with these copay accumulator restrictions through your insurance policy, they might not be actually counting the value of the prescription, the retail value of that prescription towards your out-of-pocket deductible. And you may find that you thought you were meeting your deductible and then you, you aren't. So just something to be aware of that if you have private insurance, you might want to check to see if you're able to even utilize um, the, the manufacturer's coupon programs. Excellent. Thank you so much. I, I really want to thank all of our speakers. Um, you're, you're phenomenal. That's all I can say. <laughs> Just an amazing group. And I also want to thank our participants who asked such great phones, questions on the phone and online. And um, I know that we could go on for quite some time this afternoon. There are many more questions in queue. So I do want to let you all know um, how to get your questions answered because some of you are thinking, well, I do have a question. So first of all, for those of you who asked a question, we want you to take what you learned today and go back, of course, to your healthcare team. That's really important. Um, so that's really important that you immediately just take any information you learned and, and run it past your healthcare team as well, how it applies to you specifically. Um, also, for those of you who have been listening but may um, have a question you want to ask, we never want to sidestep your healthcare team. Of course, they are, you know, they they know everything about you. They know more about you, of course. Um, they have records and things like that. So, of course, you always want to start with your healthcare team. But we also recognize that you all like to have um, additional places to go for getting information. Um, that's credible. That's really important. The credible piece is important. That's well-researched. That is up-to-date. And that's really important. So we, at the end of this call today, you will be getting an evaluation form. I mean, give us a day or two, we'll get the evaluation form. But it's not just an evaluation form. It also includes a lot of, of the organizations that were mentioned today. So, for example, everything that we mentioned today is a resource. That will be in there, of course, for you to get information from. But also in terms of medical information, we will be sending you a list of organizations that we partner with, um, organizations like the American Cancer Society, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. There are just so many organizations that are very, very credible for you to get really excellent medical information. And then you can read that information, feel that it's con you know, feel confident about the information. And for the American Cancer Society, you can actually call them. They have a 24-hour, 365-day-a-year call center that you can call as well. And they can give you information, send you information that you can then be more informed and feel more confident in talking to your healthcare team. You do not have to wait until you do this, though. You, you know, you really go ahead and ask the questions that you have in your healthcare team. They want to help you. And I think if you, both from Dr. Salt and Dr. Fleischman, your healthcare team is there to help you. They really want to do the very best for you at this very challenging time, as, as always, but they particularly now. This is a time that everyone is really wanting to really put their heads together and figure out how can we best help you, what's going to be the best for you. And for those of you who'd like to access all of our other services from Cancer Care, both our co-payment assistance programs and our, all of the programs that our oncology social workers offer, you can simply contact Cancer Care. 
and 1-800-813-4673. And for those of you internationally, you can go to our website at www.cancercare.org. And again, all that information you'll be getting again as well. And you'll be getting the websites and well as well as 800 numbers for any organizations that we give to you so you can access them depending on your preference or where you are located. So again, I want to thank you all for participating today. We have many more programs. I did mention that on March 30th, we will have a program specifically on the new healthcare environment we live in um, because of the coronavirus, and I think that that's really an important one. Many of you have signed up for it, but you'll be getting information about that. Um, and so there'll be some more information, and you'll be getting lots of information about that from your healthcare team. Again, thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.